This is The Faithful Expositor, a podcast from the preaching and teaching ministry of Pastor Jonathan Sims of Sheppardville Mills Baptist Church. Here talking with Brother Jono today about the sermon that he preached on Sunday entitled The Revelation of the Local Church. And Brother Jono, I just wanted to start off by asking, uh, how'd you arrive at that title, The Revelation of the Local Church from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6? Well, we know the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, but it's inescapable when you read the first three chapters, the word church is so prominent. It just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. And and so I've just applied that title to the church as well. What's being revealed in the opening chapters of this book is the glory of Christ and the glory of his church. And so I just thought as I study this text, that would be an appropriate title, the revelation of the local church. Um, you know, and when you're uh, studying a text, your title needs to um, obviously encapsulate what it is that you're preaching about that day. So that's kind of how I arrived at it. You mentioned right away in your introduction, and I think this is a phrase that needs to be thundered everywhere. You said this, your view of the Lord's church says everything about your view of the Lord of the church. And then you launch padded or springboard off of that a little bit. Explain that statement a little bit more. Well, Jesus can't be separated from his church. Ephesians teaches us he loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, Just a few verses into Revelation 1, it says he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Christ died to redeem his church. And the church is the bride of Christ. It's Called, we're called the, the, the bride, the lamb's wife, and, and um, the church is the dearest thing to the Lord's heart. And so I just think it's appropriate to um, focus on the Lord's church because he can't be separated from his church. That's exactly right. I think you use the illustration from Scripture of the bride and the groom, just like you just said there. You can't love a man and say you hate his wife. Right. Uh, and the same thing's true about the church. Well, I've got a copy of your manuscript right here in front of me, and I I think you may have one over there too, and I think it'd be helpful if we just kind of moved our way through this. You basically stated in your introduction that uh, in these first few verses of Revelation, basically the Lord is answering the question, what is a New Testament church? And then you gave us, I guess you could call it seven marks, seven identifiers of the local church. One of the things you said early on was the idea that every pastor coming into the church should really have this nailed down before they get there. This isn't just something that you need to learn along the way. How, how would a young pastor go about doing that? How, how can he get a better understanding of the local church before he gets there to, to, to lead and shepherd that church? One thing that would help tremendously if he was in a healthy biblical local church. And I know that's difficult for a lot of brothers because there's so few of them, you know. But the greatest way to see the glory of God in his church and the emphasis that Christ places on the church is to be in a biblically healthy local church. And I would challenge any brother that's preparing for ministry. We focus so much on seminary and we focus so much on theological studies and all that's you know, involved in that. And while that's important, it is not near as important 
as him grasping and understanding what a healthy biblical local church is, being a part of it, serving there, um, that's where you learn how to shepherd the flock. And so that kind of grows out of that. Yeah. If you're um, coming into a church then, whether you're a young pastor or older pastor, maybe you're coming into a church plant or a church revitalization, what are, what's some advice you might give to that pastor to help that church to understand what a healthy church is? Preach the great text of Scripture and pay attention. A lot of guys preach Revelation chapter 1 and don't see the numerous references to the church in this text, and that's what this sermon manuscript that you have in front of you is all about. It's what the message was all about, is to preach the great text that deal with the local church. I think it would be very important for a young pastor going into a church to very soon uh, begin to preach through the pastoral epistles and to help people understand what a church is, how it functions, how it operates, and establish the fact that the Bible is the authority for the church. Establish that right up front, that the Word of God is our sole guide in all matters of faith and practice, and hold the Word of God up before the church as the supreme authority and the standard. And then you can appeal to the standard, the Scriptures, for what a church is how it functions and operates. And like I said yesterday in the message, I think we've got to go back to square one. We can't assume when we go into a church that the people there even know what a church is. And I'm not saying that to be, you know, try to humiliate someone or be disrespectful. I, I just think the evidence proves that very few people actually know biblically what a local church is. And I think the pastor doesn't need to assume that they understand what a church is. He's got to go in and from ground up teach them what a New Testament church is biblically. Mm -hmm. And you said that, you said pay attention. I I believe you said in your sermon yesterday that the word church or churches is something like 13, 14, 15 times just in the first three chapters. That lets you know a little bit of something about what the emphasis there. Right. The key there, like you said, is... Pay attention. That's just basic hermeneutics. Your number one point was that a church is a called-out group of redeemed people. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that conclusion from the text. Last time we had this podcast, you asked me a question similar to that, and we talked about how when you do a good word study, you begin to know what that text is saying. Well, one of the first words you're confronted with in the text that I preached Sunday, Revelation 1, 4 through 6, is churches. And it's the Greek word ekklesia. It's a compound word. Ek means out, and kaleo means to call. And it's a called out group of people, called out from what from the masses of men from the world from that large pool of humanity were called out by God from that group to Jesus Christ and the call to Christ is a call to the church um, and I also said it, it reminds us a lot of the word election eclectos and how God calls us out to salvation how he chooses us out for himself even before the foundation of the world. 
So that's how I got that first point, that the church is a called-out group of redeemed people. We're, we're called out from the world. We're called to be different. We're called to be like Christ. He's our king. He's our leader. He's our ruler. And we walk by the rules of his word and the dictates of his lordship. And that's kind of how the point got that title. We were talking about this a little bit at lunch um, and how today there's a de-emphasis of church membership. But if we're called out from the world, then there should be some clear identifiers that mark us out. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, kind of a couple things there in that question, I think. First thing that pops into my mind when you ask me that question, and I've had people ask me, well, can you prove there's church membership in the mm. Bible? And mm. Is that just a man-made thing? I don't think it is at all because we have the doctrine of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Somehow there was a group of people meeting in a location, and they were known, and it was known that they belonged to this church. And that church had authority in their lives, authority to rebuke them, authority to reprove them, authority to correct them. And if necessary, authority to enact discipline, the final step, and excommunicate them. Ex excommunicate, remove them from what? Well, remove them from the membership of the church. Remove them from the Lord's table. Remove them from, you know, the, the, the fellowship of that body. And I don't know what you call it other than we say membership, but it just means that you're identified with this body. You've been baptized Acts 2.47, they that gladly received his word were baptized. It goes on to say, and the Lord added to the church. Um, you're saved. You go through scriptural baptism. You're added to the Lord's church. And that's a covenant. It's an agreement. It's, uh, you know, an accountability. And so I would say that that would be one example of uh, how... Church membership matters from the standpoint that you're tied to this body, you are a part of this body, you are identified with this body, and they know you, know about you to the standpoint that if need be, they can come and enact discipline upon you and correct you. Mm -hmm. Some of the, um, the de-emphasis of church, uh, church membership today could come from something you brought up yesterday, and that's the over-emphasis of the universal church, yes. of the so-called Catholic church, I right. guess would be the terminology if you're... And that was your point number two, was that a church is not just a called-out group of redeemed people, but it's a local body of redeemed people. Um, and we see that all throughout the New Testament. Talk to us a little bit about the emphasis of that. Uh, one of the first things that attracted me to you as a friend was a love and admiration and commitment to the local church. Uh, I remember that in 2009 when we met at, at a Shepherds Conference. Talk to us a little bit about that emphasis. It's not just a body of believers, but we're talking about a local body of believers. Well, I would acknowledge that there is a universal church, which I would say is the redeemed of all the ages in heaven and in earth. But when you turn to the New Testament, you're not confronted with a universal church. You're confronted with a local church, First and Second Corinthians, local church, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 
Thessalonians, all local churches, First and Second Timothy and Titus written to local churches. And when you turn to Revelation chapter 1, you only read 10 verses before you get to verse 11, and seven local churches are mentioned. These are churches in cities, in towns, with a pastor, with elders, with deacons, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those are all local churches in a local town meeting and assembling together under the lordship of Jesus Christ with elders and leaders, pastors, teachers that are over them, instructing them and teaching them the apostles' doctrine. So the overemphasis on a, lo on a universal church in my 31, 32 years of experience is a cop-out because you don't have to give tithes and offerings to the universal church. There's no small groups in the universal church. You're not going to be disciplined by the universal church. There is no pastor of the universal church. There are no deacons of the universal church. The universal church is not going to come see you if you're sick in the hospital. The universal church is not going to um, come alongside you and help train your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I think a lot of people hide behind such arguments as that because they don't want the accountability that comes along with a local church. You mentioned it in your sermon. You talked about this rugged individualism that seems to characterize so many today. Uh, you can hear it in postmodernism. You know, what's true for me may not be true for you, or you'll hear people say things like, uh, 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 I mean, kind of the motto, I'm going to do it my way, and who are you to tell me what I, what, who I can love or what I can be? And that kind of stuff has crept right into the church as well. I mean, we've even had people come to us asking, uh, or not even asking, but just telling us, oh, well, I'm baptizing my own children outside of the church. Uh, there's just no uh, centrality there of the local church and maybe even a love for the local church. Another example would, of that would be when I was in seminary, there was this big emphasis on the priesthood of the believer. Now, right here in our text, in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says he's made us kings and priests. And we do acknowledge and understand that we're priests before the Lord. And we understand the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. But as with any doctrine, people take it and, and bring it to an unhealthy imbalance. And there are people that think the priesthood of the believer means I'm free to do whatever I want to do it, however I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, my way. And that's in the face of clearly revealed scripture that talks about a local church and an accountability to a local church and the way a local church functions and operates. When you find someone trying to do an end around the local church, without exception in my experience, they are this rugged individual you're talking about, meism, selfism, that wants to do it their way, and, and there's always, in my experience, a great spiritual imbalance in their life, excesses, a, a lot of times sin that they're trying to hide and cover up that they don't want to be exposed, that they know will come to light if they're in a local church. 
So it's just wrongheaded, these ideas. It, it's it's a, an escapism kind of to get away from accountability, which naturally happens in the Lord's church. Sad thing is, too, we've seen this in a lot of parachurch organizations and parachurch ministries, ministries that have really no association or accountability to a local church. And I could start throwing out names, but I won't. But there are many men that we've loved and uh, revered over the years who operated with that type of a itinerant ministry who fell. And a lot of that is because of the fact that they're not closely associated to that to the local church. Nobody's above the local church. Amen. Nobody. Um, and as sure as men think they are, they, they lay the groundwork for their own fall and demise. That's right. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and this may be just kind of from a preacher's perspective, when you were talking about the local church and the local body of the redeemed people, you got into certain characteristics of the local church. Uh, on your manuscript there, you kind of got it in bullet points. You said that a local church preaches the truth, confronts error, evangelizes the lost, and several others there behind that. And of course, you've got scripture references for that. From a preacher's standpoint, now that wasn't from Revelation, but how did you get to that? Because that was so helpful for us. I almost wanted to rename that the 14 marks of a healthy church, because that's it right there straight out of the Word of God. Expository preaching over 30 plus years. When you're studying a text back in your study and you're, you've prayed and hopefully you've lived clean all week long and there's nothing between you and your Lord and you're walking in His Spirit and you come to your office having prayed, God, help me. Holy Spirit, guide me into all truth. It's like bombs going off. When you study a text like this, the Holy Spirit does what He promised He would do. He brings to your remembrance everything Christ has spoken. And He just begins to remind you of this scripture and that scripture. And I remember very well the day I was back in my office on this second point, And I was thinking about what a local church is. How does it function? How does it operate? And we just, as you brought out last time, just made it through First and Second Timothy of the pastoral epistles. And those things are still in my mind. They're still in my heart, the things that God taught me. And we have a responsibility, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, to remember what our elders have taught us and follow their example. And though I am an elder, though I'm a pastor, if you're supposed to remember what I preach, how much more am I supposed to remember what I preach? And as I studied that text, those things just became, they came to my mind of these are the main characteristics of what a healthy, Bible-driven local church would look like and, and how it would function and what its focus is. That's good. I don't want to get too far off topic here, but each one of those points that you put there are worthy of a almost an exposition, really. Talk a little bit about the temptation to do that in a message. I know that we, this is a discussion that we've had before where if you're citing a verse or referencing a passage, it's tempting sometimes to really get into it and start to almost preach that text. What do you do to kind of battle against that? Well, I failed at it. I think every pastor has. I mean, I've fallen victim to that myself. 
But I can only tell you as a hearer, when I very few times, when I seldom get to sit out in the congregation and listen to a brother preach or go to a conference and hear a brother preach, I can only tell you that when he introduces his text and gives me his title, and I'm all excited about what he's about to preach, and he tells me he's got seven points, and he gets into his second point and mentions some bullet points and preaches a sermon inside of a sermon, it just exasperates me. I, I call it you know, the old adage, losing sight of the forest for the trees. <laughs> We've got a text. It has a title. There's something the Holy Spirit wants to say in this text. But I think pastors need to resist the urge to tell everybody everything they know about everything every time they preach. It just exasperates your people. Say, stick to the text. Have clearly defined outline. That's why I take a manuscript to the pulpit and let that, let that manuscript and those main points guide you and pray for God's Holy Spirit to keep you from straying and chasing rabbits and preaching sermons within sermons because your people can only absorb so much information. And it's best if you stick to the text. Now, there, there can be exceptions where you're very, very burdened and the Holy Spirit might lead you to really bear down on a point. I understand that. But if you noticed when I preached this, I just named those things. I, ju I didn't elaborate on them. I all. just named them and gave the scriptural references so that somebody could do what you're doing this morning. They could come behind me and look those up on their own. In point number three, you talked about the autonomy of a body of redeemed people. You mentioned how this is a very historical Baptist uh, doctrine when it comes to the doctrine of the church. Talk a little bit about that, uh, what autonomy of a local church needs to look like biblically. And we briefly talked about this this morning, but what are some ways where you see this being violated today? I would acknowledge to you right up front that of all my points biblically from this text, this might be the weakest one, and I acknowledge that. But I want to say that I do believe it's there because you have seven churches and none of them rule over the others. They're each addressed individually. They each have their own individual issues that the Lord takes up with them. And though they were one in Christ, they functioned separately. And no one had authority over another. And outside ecclesiastical bodies, outside hierarchical religious bodies that are in another town and in another location that want to exercise authority over a local congregation, that's not only unbiblical, it's unthinkable to me that someone outside our church could tell us what to do and how to do it. I would say that another hallmark of Baptist life is that historically we have voluntarily cooperated with other churches at least it's supposed to be this way, of like faith and practice. And the older I've gotten, the more like faith and practice I focus in on, not just a tokenism. And the older I get, the more I make sure that we really do have like faith and practice. That's a beautiful thing. But never, ever does one of those churches or pastors rise to a point to where now they're commanding all the little satellite churches under their wings or all this little group of churches over here. 
Each church is self-governing under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ in following the written word of God. And I just felt like it was very important in the day and age which we live in to bring that up. Amen, brother. So I take it you're against uh, multi-site campuses? I believe in a local church. And I don't think that meets the definition of a local church. I think that they need to have uh, a pastor. Uh, I think they need to have elders in that local congregation. You know, I, I could give that in the beginning of starting a church, it might be wise for them to be under the eldership and the leadership of another church to help them get established and up and running biblically. But there's got to be some point along the way that that kind of relationship terminates and that church becomes an autonomous, you know, self-governing church. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a young pastor and obviously there's a lot of points we can continue to go through here, but what would you say to a young pastor who hears a message like this and sees that uh, these are marks of a church that you want to see in the church, you know they're biblical, um, you know it's the Lord's will for that to be a part of the church, and he immediately wants to start implementing changes. He wants to start making this happen today. He wants to, you know, we need to make sure we didn't have this yesterday, so we got to have deacons in place today. We need to have plurality of elders or whatever the case may be. Usually there's always something that somebody wants. What would you say to that young pastor that's coming into the church? Hard to get people to apply truth that they don't understand or they haven't ever heard before. You got to preach the truth. And you got to be patient, 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 patient. It takes years for God to build his church, especially if you've gone in to pastor an established church that's got a history of being unhealthy. It's going to take years. I think I said in my sermon last night, I think I became the pastor here at year 10, and that's probably being very generous. So you have to go in, and I always say this, I wouldn't worry about changing a whole lot up front real quick. I would go in and just preach the word like there was no tomorrow and establish that the Bible is the word of God, that this is that it's authoritative and that it's sufficient and that it's the rule by which we must walk. Paul said to the church at Philippi, we walk by the same rule, we all mind the same things. And if you can get the church to grasp biblical authority, and get them to begin to see biblical sufficiency, then you can from there begin to lead them to make structural changes. But I would say not before you get biblical authority established and they understand that the Word of God is the standard and to some degree that they can trust you and that you're going to hang in there with them and stick with them for the long haul and, and not just make a bunch of changes and then walk out and leave them, yeah. which is what they're used to. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Sometimes people, I've heard of pastors who talk about going into a church with a three-year vision. You know, I'll be there basically three years, and then once the honeymoon period's over, then I'm I'm gone. Churches have been wounded because of that kind yep, of thing. Yeah, that's past. exactly right. you got to earn that trust. Right. And it's good. That was kind of along lines what you talked about in point number four, that a church is uh, of re is a body of redeemed people ruled by the Scripture, and you talked a lot about the Scripture being uh, sufficient for that. There was one other thing that I wanted to bring up uh, before we let go of this, and that was the challenge that you gave to us. I believe it was at the end of point number five. 
when you were done preaching in the morning service, and again, you had seven points to the sermon, you cut it off at five in the morning, and then for the evening service, uh, you gave us the other two. And at the end of the fifth point, you really challenged us specifically when you were talking a lot about the church having peace, and you challenged us to take a two-week, I'm just going to call it a media, social media fast. Uh, explain a little bit about what led you to do that. Well, he says grace and peace to you in verse 4 of chapter 1, and of course I defined those words, and peace talks about quietness and tranquility and harmony and uh, a calm rest, and uh, the Dictionary of Bible Languages defines it as freedom from worry. And I just see right now people watching Fox News and CNN and headline news and getting on Twitter and the bantering back and forth, the conspiracy theories, and uh, just rack themselves with worry and rack themselves with fear. And then it moves to another level that people then begin to uh, almost equate uh, patriotism, and I'm a patriotic person, you know that, mm -hmm. and nationalism, and I love our country, with almost a Christian mandate, and somehow they wed those two together and, and just come up with this view that, uh, you know, it's our job to fix everything wrong in this country. But you know, brother, I start at Matthew and read all the way through to the book of the Revelation, and I don't see the apostles, I don't see a pastor, I don't see uh, the churches uh, saying, hey, we've got to go fix Rome. We, you know, we've got to storm the Capitol. We've got to, you know, take to the streets. They were interested in preaching the gospel. They were interested in souls being saved and won to Jesus Christ. And the other thing that troubles me is we're supposed to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. If we have the grace and the peace that this text talks about, it ought to be being manifested in our lives. They should see in us the peace of Jesus that passes all understanding. But when we go to work and we're wringing our hands like they are, and we're at the water cooler and we're having the same political wrangling discussions that they are, and when it appears to them that our hopes are in the kingdoms of men, just like their hopes are, we're putting all of our hope on our guy being in office. We're putting all of our hopes on our political agenda getting advanced. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it troubles me greatly. And I see people in our churches racked with fear. I see people in our churches racked with anxiety. I see people in our churches absolutely pierced through with worry, 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 worry. And so I just challenged our people for two weeks, don't read the paper, don't read the news post on social media, don't watch Fox News, CNN, Headline News, ABC, NBC, CBS. The time that you would normally spend doing that, read the scripture. The time that you would normally spend doing that, pray. And in two weeks, let's compare where you stand to the grace and the peace that verse 4 talks about. He will keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on thee. We need to keep our hearts and our minds focused on the gospel. We need to be filled with the spirit and faith 
not fear and not anxiety and not worry because the kingdoms of men are not going the way we want them to. It's the job of the church to uh, experience the Prince of Peace and then walk that out before this world. And if we're worried and racked with fear just like they are, what hope do we have to offer them? Mm, that's good. Well, I got to tell you, just from a, uh, the perspective of somebody in the pew, it was, uh, uh, it was wonderful. It's helpful. I think we all see it. And like you and I talked a little bit about this morning, true sheep love that. Uh, they want that. They want that type of care uh, from their under-shepherd, and they long for it. And it's a little bit liberating. It's a little bit freeing for them. It's kind of like giving uh, parameters to a child. At the end of the week, when that notification pops up on your phone that shows you what your screen time was and how much time you spent in this app and how much time you spent in this app and how much time you spent on the various different apps that are on your phone. I don't think I am uh, exaggerating at all to say that probably the average church member spends 10 times more, and I think that's being very conservative, mm -hmm. 10 times more on their phone than they do reading the scriptures, mm -hmm. than they do praying. No wonder we're fearful. No wonder we're full of anxiety. Um, it, it, Christ has engineered us to be our healthiest and our strongest when we're feeding our faith. But we're feeding our fears. Mm -hmm. And we're doing it through looking at all this news stories and thinking the sky's falling. And I just want to emphatically say the sky's not falling. By him, all things consist. He holds them all together, and we can trust Jesus to be God enough to keep this world from falling apart until he says it's time for it to fall apart and rest in him and his lordship. This Bible says he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's king over every king, and he's lord over every lord, and we need to trust him. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Well, that may be a good stopping point for us uh, this uh, episode. If you are still interested in uh, going back and listening to Brother Jono's sermon called The Revelation of the Church, I believe it's a part one and a part two, you can find it on our website, www.smbconline.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Faithful Expositor. For more information on Brother Giano's ministry, go to our church website, smbconline.com, and follow him on Twitter at Giano Sims.